Hello and welcome to the Blue Collar Yields podcast. I am your host, Tom Migliaccio. At Blue Collar Yields, we will talk about real estate, entrepreneurialism, and many other topics. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts. And while there, don't forget to rate this show and subscribe. Our next guest is Rob Ransom, an attorney at Archer Law. Rob has a BA in political science from Howard University and a JD from Rutgers. He also volunteers at Big Brothers, Big Sisters of America, where he helps children realize their potential and build their future. Rob concentrates his practice in the area of land use, planning and zoning, real estate acquisitions, environmental permitting, and regulatory compliance as well as affordable housing development and many other areas, including energy. Prior to starting his legal career, Rob worked for a Washington, D.C.-based commercial real estate firm that specialized in the financing and development of mixed-use and missed-income commercial development. Rob has quite the dossier that would probably take me an hour to get through, but some of his highlights are NJ Law Journal, New Leaders of the Bar in 2019, Named as a rising star for land use slash zoning, New Jersey's top attorney listing, as well as the Leap Academy University Charter School Alumni Hall of Fame in 2018. Rob, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Oh no, thank you for you know having me. I really uh, appreciate the invite. I was looking forward to you know just touching base with you and uh, you know just catching up again. Yeah, I'm really excited here. Now, before we begin, I have to do a corny lawyer joke and request a sidebar. It's my understanding that you are the lead counsel for South Jersey's first outdoor beer garden. Yes, well, it's South Jersey's first permanent outdoor beer garden, being the Camden Arts Yard, downtown Camden. I think we went in maybe a year ago, or it could have been two years ago at this point, and, and got those approvals that, to my understanding, the Camden Art Yard is, is thriving. We're drinking a lot of beer over there, which is it's good for everyone. <laughs> yes, great for all people involved. So if you go to an outdoor beer garden in southern New Jersey, you have Rob Ransom to thank for that. He paved the way for the legislation for the rest of them. So, uh, Rob, when did you first become interested in real estate? Wow. Okay, so... It's a bit of a funny story. I was a junior studying political science and community development, a little public finance down at Howard University. And one of my econ courses, one of my professors, Andre Byers, works heavily in development down in D.C. He brought in a speaker, Bruno Benitier, who was the principal of Dante's Partners, commercial development firm district. I just listened to this guy speak about development in a way that just you know got me excited. I was in D.C. from 2009 to 2013, and I'm sure you're familiar with the fact that the district has gone through an amazing transformation, a lot of redevelopment work, and you see, you literally saw cranes everywhere, particularly in Northwest D.C. where I live, and. You know, we walk past these things, and we see a lot taking place in Camden and Philadelphia across the bridge um, up here in New Jersey. We see all these cranes, and we see all this development taking place, and 
Well, I think rarely we stop to think about all the work that goes into that. And, you know, I had this guy who looked like me talking about this. And literally the next day I gave him a call and it was a cool call. and told him that I was interested in what he was talking about. I wanted to meet him just to pick his brain. Little did he know that our meeting would be an interview and was not leaving his office without an internship. And it gave me my first opportunity, my first look into this business. And I pretty much haven't stopped from there. So did you know going in that that was your main goal to leave this meeting with an offer, something tangible where you could leave and say, hey, I have an internship or I have an offer or something like that? I went in knowing that I wanted to learn more. And I knew, I saw myself, I'm a very hands-on person. That's how I learned. And I was looking for an opportunity. So I went in knowing that I wasn't going to leave without, you know, some opportunity to learn more, whether that was, you know, mentorship or formal internship opportunity. And something I didn't really appreciate until recently, you know, taking on an intern when you don't have a formal internship program, it's work for the person. You have to create work for them, for the intern. And there's a lot of oversight and, you know, now you have to manage this new person. You know, so I really appreciated the fact that he was willing to do that. And even more so now, I appreciate it. I didn't have much to offer, but, you know, some hard work, ethic, and that was about it. I really didn't know much about real estate. I just knew that I wanted to learn more about, you know, development. So let's take it back, right? You did mention Camden and all the cranes. And I know there's a lot of controversy around that, and we're just going to skip that over. But in your opinion, you saw that transformation in D.C. Does this kind of feel like the same thing that's going on in Camden? And I know it's not going to be a cookie cutter. I know it's not going to be the exact same thing, but does it have the same feel? Yes and no. So, I mean, I'll say this. I feel as if I missed the wave largely. I mean, the development in D.C., you know, while many think it happened overnight, everyone who's been on the ground, they understand that it's been a transformation. That's still continuing, one, uh, but that began over 30 years ago. And, you know, development takes time. Transforming neighborhoods takes time. A lot of capital investment, a lot of organizing. And I felt as if I missed that wave. But that does take a lot of capital to develop. I felt as if I missed that wave in D.C., um, and more importantly, I saw an opportunity to be involved in what was taking place back home. I went to high school in the city of Camden, right on Cooper Street, you know, literally uh, right in the gateway to all the development that's taking place in the city of Camden. And people have mixed feelings and opinions about the development that's taking place and how, you know, what's funded that development, who benefits from all the investment in the city. And, you know, people can go back and forth all day with that. But for me, I just saw an opportunity to be a part of you know, the transformation of the city and hopefully be a part of some equitable development, development of a community that not only is uh, bringing in tons of jobs and beautiful buildings for inviting new people to the city, but also making sure that the people living in the city are being able to take advantage of that development and benefit from that development as well. And I think they will come. So we're going to stay in Dante's face. So 
You graduated from Howard and you're working at Dante's as a project manager. What did you enjoy most about your role on the development team? So I was working as an assistant project manager. And what I enjoyed about that role is essentially I was a glorified intern, but I was allowed to pretty much thrown in the mix of just about everything. And I was able to see all aspects of a deal from the financing side to just the entitlement. <laughs> just going through the process, the entitlement process and getting your permits to build is a very interesting process because on one end, there's a political aspect to it because you can have a grand idea as to what you want to build in a particular parcel, but the politics aren't there. The, the community support isn't there. You know, you may not ever be able to build despite the fact that it's a project that could benefit the community tremendously. So I appreciated the aspect that I was allowed to see deals from the inside, being able to see the challenges that you face on our individual deals and understanding that every deal is different and being able to work with, you know, professionals. You know, when you're working in this space, you have the opportunity of working with a lot of people who are smarter than you. Your engineer is your architect. Having that opportunity to work with you know professionals from different professions that having different backgrounds, you just learn a lot. You get to learn a little bit of everything enough, you know, so that you're dangerous and equipped and able to have informed conversations with the members of your project team. So that's what I appreciated the most about the role, and I appreciated that you know I was with a company that allowed me you know sit in our meetings where, frankly, at the time, I didn't have much to offer. And I was just sitting in, I was a sponge, and I was allowed, I was granted that, that sort of access and opportunity that I think most just don't get without having any credentials to, you know, to make them deserving of such. Yeah, that's a good point. So do you think it's important for them to sit in on these meetings from an early stage in their development and employment so they can learn how to level up and actually see what goes on in this meeting and have maybe give them something to strive for so they can provide input in the future? Of course. I mean, for me, I like to think I'm so young myself. I'm 28, but I speak to you know college students and law students. I mean, even uh, some of my mentees are in high school. I try to you just, you just relay that, you know, you have to be hungry. You should be a sponge. If you're, you find an interest in something, you know, you should surround yourself with people who are doing what you're doing. Try to learn as much as possible about what it is that interests you. You know, I know the type of learner I am. I learn from doing and just observing. And when you're in those rooms, you have an opportunity to, to see the thought process behind uh, how particular problems are solved. You begin to understand the business. You begin to understand deals in a different manner. And I think it's very much beneficial. And you have to be hungry. But also, on the other end, I think that the employers and the business owners out there, you know, should also, I mean, I was granted the opportunity by someone. In fact, one of my mentees is currently interning. He's a law student uh, down in D.C., and he's currently interning at Dante's Partners right now. And when I learned of the news, I was really excited because uh, the guy he reached out to me and just letting me know that he, while interning this summer, had a little bit of experience with some affordable housing development work. And I really interested him and 
when he told me that and realizing that he was down in D.C., I told him that I would connect him with my guy, Boo Benitez, Dante's partners. And just with, you know, my schedule and everything, a couple of weeks went by and I failed to, you know, make that introduction. Literally, as soon as I finally did it, Boo Benitez, my, my former boss, emailed me back and told me that this young man had reached out to him. And that's the type of hunger I like to see because you can't wait around for anyone. And I didn't wait around for anyone when I, I wanted to enter this field. Having an employer who and a boss who was willing to give me the opportunity, despite the fact that I didn't have any experience, you know, sometimes the credentials mean a lot less than the actual work ethic behind the person. So Dante's Partners finances the development of affordable housing using the Low Income Housing Tax Credit, or the LIHTC program. Can you please give our listeners a high-level summary of the LIHTC program and its importance to our country? I believe in the 1980s sometime, or, yeah, I believe it was in the 80s. It could be. Was it that last tax reform? I believe so. But essentially, what it does is the, the LIHTC program a tax credit program, a federal tax credit program, whereas I believe it is HUD issues these tax credits that are essentially meant to encourage private investment. From the, the investor standpoint, it's a dollar-for-dollar dollar tax credit reduction. So utilize those tax credits in order to you know, spur uh, the development of affordable housing. And I won't get into, you know, your 2080, uh, 60, 40 deals, anything <laughs> like that. But I, I like to see tax credit programs as a catalyst to, you know, public-private partnership and, and investing in the development of affordable housing. And that's it. And I think that, you know, uh, it's important that we have affordable housing for low-income individuals, for working-class individuals, and also our, our senior population. And that was one of the most rewarding things about working at Dante's Partners and entering to this field is that obviously our objective is you know, to make money and to build projects that are sustainable from a financial standpoint. But when you're also able to serve a social need and you know to do some good work and you know provide safe, clean, affordable housing, you feel good about it. So we're in the midst of an affordable housing crisis. While the LIHTC program did survive the tax reform, the legislation did very little to incentivize the development of new affordable housing communities. What can the government at a local or federal levels do to increase affordable housing developments? A lot could be done, and I'm no economist. I'll say this. I think that the focus should be on making sure that people, I mean, the fact remains that Americans are working longer hours and taking home less pay. Um, Inflation uh, adjusted, right? Less, that's what yes. you're saying? Yes. And you read these statistics, and then you, you never know where they pull them from, but you read figures suggesting that most Americans have to work two full-time jobs in order to afford housing. I think we should focus on policy that allows, that encourages investment in our workforce. And we should focus on policy that will allow people to, you know, earn a decent wage, enough money to at least be able to afford housing. 
I think when we focus on business and innovation, you know, we'll get there. And so, yes, there is an affordable housing crisis. And yes, I think something has to be done, but I don't think there's one solution. I think there are a number of things that can be done. And one of the, in my opinion, one of the most important things is not just, you know, providing more affordable housing units, but also making sure that people, our workers, are given wages. Teach a man to fish. That's what yeah. you're saying, right? Exactly. I think people need the opportunity to actually have a chance. You know, we can talk about affordable housing, the lack thereof, you know, the, the lack of quality jobs, and the fact that people have to work over 40 hours a week just to, you know, make ends meet. To me, that's a more significant problem. I think the lack of affordable housing is, is just a side effect of that. So my next question is, you see politicians and they just say rent control. You know, I'm sure they're very nice guys, but they just don't seem to be subject matter experts on this. Do you think that there needs to be some inclusionary zoning or expansion of the LIHTC program? And in your opinion, has the OZ kind of taken the front stage uh, over the LIHTC program? I don't think the opportunity zones have... I mean, I think everyone's still trying to figure out opportunity zones, and I think most people are still trying to figure it out. But uh, So I don't think it's taken the place of uh, a LIHTC program. And I don't think it ever will. I think it will just... The both will complement each other. But when it comes to, you know, politicians and others throwing out uh, the solution, the proposed solution of rent control, Again, I'm no economist, but what I do know is that economists differ whether or not, you know, rent control policies are actually effective um, and actually, you know, serve the purpose. Some actually argue that uh, rent control policies result in, in the opposite of the intended purpose. And my position on this is I think rent control may be appropriate for particular markets. I don't think it is a universal solution, and I do think that oftentimes, you know, politicians are they're trying to win a race, right? And I think the solution is out there. I mean, rent control sounds good; it's popular among a particular population or a particular demographic, and especially in, in cities. But whether or not it's effective, you know, I think. The data on that is conflicting. Again, it goes back to you know, the point I made earlier. I think that you know we should focus more on creating quality jobs and making sure that workers earn a you know a livable wage. Yeah, no, that is a great way to tie that in. So we're going to shift it again. So when did you realize you wanted to be a lawyer? And why did you choose? Like you had a fresh start, right? You go to law school. And you could have studied any area of the law, and you stuck with real estate. Why was that? Well, honestly, when I uh, so met Dante's partners, and I'm about to graduate, and it was I had the choice of do I stay here and uh, continue in this role, continue working in, in the district and, and developing, or do I stick to the plan that I had all along? You know, go to law school. And uh, as I stated earlier, I saw an opportunity to get involved in the development that was taking place back home 
and frankly, living in D.C. is uh, very expensive. So I decided to come back home, and even though I had a great time at Dante's Partners, I still went to law school thinking that I'd be a litigator. And that's because that mock trial, I pretty much have been told all my life that, I, you know, to be a litigator. So you're good at arguing? <laughs> uh, yeah, that stuff. But <laughs> it wasn't until I honestly did not think about working in real estate as an attorney until after my second clerkship. I was clerking for Honorable Judge Samandel uh, in the District of New Jersey and had this amazing clerkship. You're working on, you know, some of the most complex legal issues and you're seeing some of the best litigators. And it wasn't until, you know, I'm in this respected clerkship position and I realized that it still felt like work in a way that working in a development didn't feel like work as much. So it wasn't satisfying. Um, yeah, it just wasn't. As satisfying as other things. So. Exactly. Exactly. I, I think that's a perfect way to put it. I enjoyed working in development much more, and I enjoyed working with other professionals and not just with attorneys on, on, on a regular basis. And so it was at that point that I realized I needed to start shifting a bit back towards, you know, what something I knew that I enjoyed, and that was working in the development space. And coincidentally, an opportunity at Archer and Grinder. Uh, their land use group, you know, working between the land use group and the real estate group opened up and it was literally the perfect fit. It's been, uh, it's been great ever since. So how grateful are you though, that you had the opportunity to have that clerkship where you could kind of check that off and you said, you know, I know I just wasn't going in one direction. I, I actually, I know I'm really happy and there's, you know, I don't have my eye on anything else. Well, I'm grateful for the clerkship opportunity because even though, you know, for the most part, most of my work now is, you know, in the development space. I work with developers to help them build. But I still work on litigation matters. I'm still equipped to do so. And it's the perfect balance. I appreciate my colleagues who tap me every now and then to, to handle some litigation work for them and, and their confidence in me. So being able to have this diverse skill set, I do attribute it to you know, both of the clerkships that I have, but certainly the clerkship I have with uh, Justin Mandel, uh, who actually passed this past summer. And uh, Justin Mandel completely changed my life, and uh, I'll forever be grateful because he granted me an opportunity at a time that I think, you know, I'm not sure most other federal judges would have granted me the same opportunity. And once Justin Mandel granted me that opportunity. Uh, it opened up a lot of doors. Honestly, my career has been made possible by a lot of good people, you know, just giving me an opportunity, giving me a shot, even when I didn't necessarily have, you know, the typical credentials you see. Yeah. So how often do clients come to you after they have been denied a request from the township? And how much easier would the process have been for them if they came to you right away? I would say that while we do see, we have clients who come to us after going through the zoning process without counsel or with perhaps the wrong counsel, they end up, you know, sometimes digging a hole for themselves that we have to get them out of. 
sometimes it's not just with the attorney, with their having the right project in, in general, your engineers, your architects, and understanding that, you know, you want to do a lot of work on the front end so that you don't run into these particular issues on the back end. I think it's not just important to have, you know, competent counsel, but also important to have a good project team and someone's going to be honest with you and tell you what you need to hear as opposed to what you want to hear. And that's it. It's, you know, sometimes we do encounter situations where um, the process would have been a lot easier had you been contacted a, a little bit earlier in the process. But at the end of the day, you know, our job is, you know, to solve problems. That's what we do. So regardless of what took place prior to us being engaged, we do our best uh, to put our clients in a position to build as they want to build or utilize their property in a manner that, that they desire. All it is is uh, a more complex problem sometimes when we didn't engage in earlier in the process. So, you know, some problems are avoidable. Uh, we all make mistakes. And fortunately, I think we've done a good job of kind of correcting those mistakes for you know, our clients. So Rob, let's talk about Archer just real quick, just about the services that you guys provide. So if I come to you and I say, hey, Rob, I'm thinking of doing a development of XYZ, do you guys have a preferred vendors list for me to use so that these, we'll call them missteps or slip-ups, can be minimized? Well, we're, we're a full-service firm, so we handle pretty much any and all matters. But generally, the way it works, most of the time we're contacted with someone, developer, intending to build on a particular parcel. And we work with, as far as our engineers, our surveyors, LSRPs, all of the professionals we work with. It always depends on the scope of the project, the municipality, certain, just as we have, you know, a good relationship with particular municipalities that we worked in pretty much up and down the state, across the bridge, for the most part in the region. Uh, particular engineering firms, they have their relationships as well. So we try to work within the budgets of our clients to, mm-hmm. to point them in the direction, you know, competent professionals to, to make the, the, a good project team. And that's it. We have uh, a number of firms that we work with on a routine basis. Yeah. So is it as difficult to develop in New Jersey as some people might have you think it is? No, I wouldn't think so. I mean, everyone knows New Jersey is a pretty highly regulated state. So I think that does, you know, it may impact the preferred timeline on a project. But I believe most municipalities throughout the state are very much developer friendly. Most boards that we appear before are developer friendly. And even at the state level, for the most part, I think that, you know, the, the state sends a message that it's developer, it's business friendly. But at the end of the day, there are, there are always competing interests, and we have to be mindful of those competing interests. And our job is to solve difficult problems and assist our clients with the regulatory process of, of obtaining approvals. So while we do live in, a, I think, what most would consider a highly regulated state. I don't think that these regulations are enforced in a manner that would make it, that would suggest that it's extremely difficult to develop in New Jersey. You know, I encounter the same problems across the bridge 
that I encounter in New Jersey. But for the most part, I think developing in New Jersey. I think New Jersey is still a business-friendly state. You know, taxes are what they are. But I think that other than the taxes, most municipalities, you know, have some sort of redevelopment areas that, you know, long-term pilots and short-term taxes exemption methods. I think it depends on who you ask, but in my opinion, I don't think it. New Jersey is difficult to develop it. So we briefly touched on this, but the new tax reforms opportunity zones are really getting a lot of headlines. How affected do you see the program being when it comes to development in underserved communities? It depends. And I hate to give such a lawyerly answer, but I think it depends on how the program is utilized. And again, I think everyone's still trying to wrap their heads around the Opportunity Zone policy. But I think that from a business perspective, it's great. I mean, a potential permanent tax exemption or capital capital gains sounds amazing. But from a community, the particular question that you ask is investment in underprivileged communities. I like to see development take place in, in, in an equitable way, mm-hmm. in a way that benefits um, the, the community, that not only, you know, assist in the redevelopment of communities, but, you know, I like to see the people living in those communities reap the benefits of the same. So I think so long as you have people in the community on the ground who understand these issues, who understand what it takes to have sustainable development, that the Opportunity Zone policies can definitely assist in, in the redevelopment of underprivileged neighborhoods. But I think that you know the local players will really have to ensure that the interests of their communities that they represent presently are protected. So and, I don't mean to cut you off, but a more utilitarian approach. I wouldn't even call it a utilitarian approach. I would call it I mean, in order to have sustainable societies, we need to have a balanced approach to how we invest in communities and how we redevelop communities. And with this location, poor people, it doesn't help anyone. Right. And so I wouldn't call it utilitarian. I would just call it, you know, we all live in this world together and we have an obligation to each other. And that's it. Something that's above everything else that I was really impressed you mentioned you being a sponge and you being hungry, and I'm sure that you know you're 28 and you're as successful as you are. We noticed that not only did you take the initiative to learn computer programming, you devoted your law school graduation party to raising funds so that student in Camden could take computer science courses. Could you tell us a bit more about the party and how coding has helped your career? Well, I think for me, I'm all about, like I said earlier, I was pre- provided opportunities along this journey. It's just been nothing but people providing opportunities for me. And obviously, once you are provided those opportunities and that access to enter new fields, your job to you know take advantage of those opportunities and work hard and be a sponge and learn as much as possible. But the first step is someone providing those opportunities and exposure to you. I went to a high school in Camden, and you know at the end of the day, well, everyone can point to my success and they'd say that, you know, well, if he can do it, everyone can. Uh, again, there's a lot of people who provided opportunities to me. 
I went to a high school in Camden, but literally at the end of each day, I got on a train and I went back to a neighborhood that was rather, at the time, rather different from Camden. I think still is rather different from Camden. I went home to a home with two parents. With, I knew there was food in the fridge. I never questioned my safety. I could walk around my neighborhood without issue. So for me, it was just about providing an opportunity for students to get into a growing field in the tech space. And I'm all about innovation. I just thought about how when I was in high school and how it may sound silly, but MySpace was a big thing. The cool backgrounds and pages and all that. And literally, you had to like, like there were codes. So people were coding and they didn't even know it. Yet, when you look at, very similar to the real estate and, and the law profession, when you look at the tech profession, there's very little diversity. For me, I just wanted to, to expose students who look like me, who came from a similar background as me, to a field that I saw a lot of growth in. And that was it. We were able to raise money to implement computer science program at my alma mater, Loop Academy, in the city of Camden. So we're going to end it. One more question. What was your first ever job, and what lessons did you carry forward into your career? I think my first job was, I'm not going to count Wendy's because they fired me after <laughs> a couple of weeks. But I think my first job actually kept for a little time uh, was serving tables at Friendly's. And I could pick my first job in my legal career, but I would say it was my first job in my life, serving tables at Friendly's. It taught me one of the most valuable lessons that I still apply today. You speak kind. Learn how to, being able to talk to people from different backgrounds, connect with people from different backgrounds. I think it's an important skill. A lot of times, you know, I do believe that there, there have been times in my career as an attorney that I've been able to achieve results that others would not have been able to achieve simply because of the fact that I just believe in being kind. I believe in just being respectful and learning how to connect with others, realizing that regardless of the fact that we all come from different backgrounds, our commonalities go much further than our differences. You know, when you're serving tables and you're talking to your customers and the same way that, you know, I sought to, you know, get to know people then and I still do now and in practice. So learning how to speak to people, being a kind person, learning how to relate to others from different backgrounds. I think it's very much an important skill set, or skill rather. And with regard to the most valuable lesson I've learned as an attorney, is you know, be reliable. Thank you for your time today, Rob. We really appreciate it. I know you're a busy guy. How can the people get in touch with you if they have questions about real estate or to retain your services at Archer? You can email me, give me a call, or follow me on Twitter at uh, Rob Ransom. ESQ. I believe my Twitter handle, my Instagram handle, all that's the same. You look me up at archerlaw.com. Archer and Griner, we're a mid-sized regional firm, and more importantly, this is a firm of you know some really good people. So I came here, and that's why I'm still here. Thanks, Rob. Great talking to you. I hope you have a great day. Thanks a lot, Tom. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If there are more topics you would like to hear about, you can email us at info at bluecollaryields.com. For more episodes, 
You can search Blue Collar Yield on Apple Podcasts.